Welcome to those who are joining us in the Fellowship Hall and through the broadcast today. It's good that we can study God's Word together this morning. You are not enough. Have you ever heard that voice? Recently, I read Brené Brown's book, Daring Greatly, for a book club, and she talked a lot about that voice. You see, Brown is a shame and vulnerability researcher who found that living in our culture today is a real challenge for the health of the soul. Those are my words. (laughs) Because our culture is constantly telling us, mostly to sell you stuff, that you are not good enough, or smart enough, or thin enough, not successful enough, not certain enough, just not enough. Ordinary life is meaningless. You have to be extraordinary if you're going to matter at all. We're surrounded by airbrushed images of perfection, Facebook posts of exciting lives. We're constantly bombarded with things that you should know all about and be on top of and understand. The latest technology you should have, the vacations you should be taking, the parenting style you should be using, the house you should afford. More than any other time in history, we're faced with constant pressure to measure up to an ideal, an ideal that no person on the planet actually measures up to, but we want to measure up to it anyway, or at least we want to pretend that we do. It's no wonder that people are struggling to feel that who they are could ever be enough. And what makes it so insidious is shame, because shame destroys your sense of worth. It taps into fear, and it makes us hide our vulnerabilities. It makes us disconnect and hide our real hearts behind a show, when what our hearts really want is connection, real love, real belonging. But real connection can never happen without vulnerability. If you can never be yourself, warts and all, you'll never know that you are loved, warts and all. You'll only think your love for what you show the world the world that will always find a reason to say that who you are is not enough. We need a different way of living. In her book, Brown calls this wholeheartedness. And she says this, at the core of wholeheartedness is vulnerability and a sense of real worthiness, facing uncertainty, exposure, and emotional risks, knowing that I am enough. And I thought that was a beautiful thing when I read that in her book. I thought she hit on a real wound of our time. And it did something really powerful in me just to do what she suggested, to take a deep breath and to say out loud, I am enough. It felt good. And I thought, that's great. I trust it. But not on my own authority, and certainly not because a shame and vulnerability researcher who has never met me told me to say it. I agree that we need that deep down assurance to live wholehearted lives. But how can anyone trust those words if they don't have the authority of the Son of God and His saving grace standing behind them to back them up? Sometimes I think in cartoons. And I had this mental image of a person standing alone, shouting out into the void of the world, I am enough! while this tidal wave of advertising and comparison and shame just crushes her and drifts over her and she's lost in the tide. And then I had a second picture in my head of the same person, this time with Jesus' powerful hands on her shoulders. And she's speaking out into the world, I am enough. And the sea of advertising and comparison and shame has been made to be still. 
under their feet. See, the difference is, this person speaking these words is speaking them not as a defense against the storm, but from her center as the beloved one of God. And Jesus is her witness to that truth, and he is the reason for it. The reason that we can trust that who we are is enough is because our identity has been given to us by Jesus Christ, and what he gives is more than enough. I thought Brené Brown's book was full of really good reminders not to let shame or perfectionism get the upper hand in our lives, but more than anything, what it did for me was make me so grateful for Jesus Christ, so grateful that my worth is not at the mercy of my ability or anyone else's opinion, but that it's held forever in the hands of my Savior. Being a Christian brings me so much joy and so much peace, and I wish that everyone knew that. But unfortunately, so many times when people approach Christianity, they miss the peace altogether because they come looking for a religion instead of a faith. A religion is a set of practices that people work in order to earn salvation or achieve a level of spiritual enlightenment. But the center of a religion really is you, you against the tide. You do these things in order to get these things from God. Religion as a self-help program. And when people approach Christianity that way, there is no peace in it. There's only a mad scramble to rack up points until you die, hopefully with a positive good works balance. But that kind of religion is just a lifetime of facing down the wave of you are not good enough. And you know what? We aren't good enough for that game. <laughs> and just to let you know, that's not Christianity. That is not what Jesus died to give you. At the center of Christianity is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Christianity is not a religion, it's a faith. And faith, boiled down, means trust. You are a Christian when you put your trust not in what you do, but in what Christ has done for you. And that relationship with the one that you're trusting with your life begins to change you from the inside out. And living in that relationship, you get to know who he is through his word, through his community, through prayer. And the more that you surrender to him, the more you trust him and not you, the more your life becomes like his. Jesus brings peace because he didn't come to bring more religion, but to invite us into eternal relationship with God. He came to invite us to be the beloved. In John 17, we overhear Jesus praying to God his Father about what he wants most. And this is what Jesus wants in John 17. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. 
That's what Jesus wants. He wants you to know God's love is for you. And he wants you to be with him forever. He wants you to share in the glory of the life of the triune God as the beloved ones. Because through his sacrifice, Jesus has opened the way to extend that life and that love to us. If we will receive it from him. Can you trust him that you are the beloved? What would it mean to wake up tomorrow morning and believe from the moment that you open your eyes that because of Christ, you are enough to be joyfully welcomed into the presence of God every moment of this day? Not you minus a few pounds, not you with a little better grades, not you after some business success, not because of your mad skills or with so many likes on Facebook, but you, just you simply because Jesus Christ has called you God's beloved. How would you live your life differently if you truly believed that in Christ you are enough? How would that joy pour out into the world? Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't want to take you places. I'm not saying that there are not things that need to be pruned in your life. I'm not saying that there's no room for you to grow. All those things are true and they always will be. There is no place you can go in life where God will say to you, well, that's it. I don't have anything more to teach you, so just take five. (laughs) When you live in an eternal relationship with God, you're gonna find it's always gonna be growing. When I say you are enough, I'm not saying there's nowhere to grow from here. I don't mean take five. What I mean is you can tell shame to take a hike. Shame, that voice that says you're not enough, that says you're bad because fill in the blank, needs to take a backseat to the truth of God that says who you are is my beloved. Now you might be the beloved who has some guilt to confess and repent of and be restored from. You might be the beloved sinner, but who you are is the beloved. And you might be the beloved who has a long way to grow, the beloved who's got a lot to learn, but who you are is the beloved. Do you see what a difference that makes? So let me ask you, what keeps you from believing that in Jesus Christ you are God's beloved, for real? I think there's usually three different main things. First of all, our guilt. Our very real guilt over our wrongdoing and our shame over our failures, our belief that if we really are the beloved, we should never fail, and our struggles in life, which make us think, if I really am God's beloved, why am I dealing with this? So let's take a look at how scripture shows us these things in the life of the beloved of God. Let's take a look at Simon Peter. When we think about Simon Peter, I think most of us can see him as a beloved one of God. Jesus very affectionately called him the rock after Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah. And Peter was always bold and courageous and passionate, a leader among men. We can see why he'd be one of the beloved of Jesus. And then on the night that Jesus would be arrested, he gives Simon Peter a warning. In Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. 
Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? Jesus knows that Peter is going to fail. The rock is going to crumble in the face of fear. Three times. And Jesus knew that Peter was going to be utterly devastated by that failure. That the very center of his identity was going to fall apart. He prided himself on his strength and he would lose it. And if he'd ever thought that he'd earned his place with Jesus, he wouldn't anymore. He'd experience a terrible failure, not only of discipleship, but of friendship too. Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail to stand up for him. And amazingly, it didn't seem to concern him a whole lot, except for what it would do to Peter's heart. You see, Jesus knew that Peter's strength would fail. Jesus knew that his courage would fail, but he was praying. What mattered to Jesus was that Peter's faith would not fail. And when you have turned back, he said, strengthen your brothers. And this was the moment of truth for Peter. Because as long as he felt that he had a place with Jesus on his own merit, then things were fine. But in the face of his epic failure, when he had lost all illusions that he deserved the honor of Jesus' friendship, now comes the test that matters. In the face of his very real guilt and shame, would his faith remain? Faith not in himself, but his faith in the strength of Jesus' love for him. Would he dare to believe that he was the beloved, not because he was so lovely, but because of Jesus' love alone? That was what Jesus was praying for for Peter. When all the things that Peter had taken pride in about himself were stripped away, Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail and in turning back, he would strengthen his brothers and that is exactly what Peter did. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter stood with him on the shore and received the gift of Jesus' restoration with the opportunity to confess his love for Jesus three times, one for every time that he had denied him. In the end, Peter chose to trust in Jesus' power to restore and to forgive more than he had trusted in his own ability to follow. And as a result, Peter did strengthen his brothers more than he could have any other way. Peter's failings gave him a platform to understand Jesus' grace in a way he never would have otherwise. He was forgiven, he was restored, he was beloved, not because he was strong or because he'd never failed, but because he dared to trust that Jesus' power to redeem is bigger than our ability to mess up. Peter had found his savior, and it made all the difference. And that is the biblical story of Jesus' greatest disciple, Peter. That's what Jesus did in Peter's life. And what does that tell you about what Jesus came to do in you? Can you trust that Jesus to call you beloved? Deep down, what our hearts are crying out for is real love, real connection. But real connection doesn't happen if we can't be real, warts and all. And what Peter learned is that true belonging is only found when we offer up our imperfect selves and find that we're accepted. Not when we offer the best polished version of ourselves. If we don't come broken to the Lord, we won't understand that we really are his beloved. That it's not your good works, it's not your wins that he loves, but you. And that's why confession is such an important part of worship. Because it's so easy for us to think in our relationships with people, wow, if you even knew all the things about me, 
But guess what? All those things, God already knows. Not only does he know what you've done, he knows exactly why you did it, even if you don't. Confession gives you the opportunity to bring those things to him, not because he doesn't know. He's not surprised in the least. He was there. Confession is the opportunity for you to bring it to him so that you can know that he knows and to give you the chance to admit that it was wrong, to repent of it, to give it to him and to hear his answer back to you. Jesus died to pay the price for this sin too. It is forgiven, paid in full. Now go and sin no more. If God Almighty says that what is confessed in Jesus' name is forgiven, then who are you to argue with him? In its original Latin form, the word sacrifice means to make sacred or to make holy. Jesus sacrificed his own life to make us holy. And it's by his authority that we are the beloved. So now like Peter, forgiven and free, it's time to respond by living into the joy of that grace and use that to strengthen our brothers and our sisters. Because when you know that you are the beloved, that's when things really take off. God has places he wants to take you. He has things he wants to prune out of your life, things he wants you to confess and get rid of, things he wants you to take up and try out in joy. But you will only live into those things when you dare to believe who you are to him. There's so much more that he wants for you. But this morning you might be saying, well, my life sure doesn't look like I'm the beloved. How can I be God's beloved if he's letting this happen in my life? So many times we think that if we're in the middle of struggles or real pain that God must not love us. He must not care about us at all. But let's take a look at the beloved ones in scripture. Abraham argued with God. Jacob wrestled with him. Moses complained, Lord, why did you give me these surly people to manage through the wilderness? Jesus cried out in the garden, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Being the beloved does not mean that you'll never struggle. No person in the Bible lived a life without struggle. But it does mean that you'll never be alone. And nothing that you do trusting in the Lord will ever be lost or will ever be forgotten. Even Peter's failure became an opportunity for God's amazing grace. You see, in God's love, he doesn't always prevent struggle in our lives, but he doesn't let go of us either. In Brené Brown's book on vulnerability, she has a whole section on parenting. And what she found in her research was the very hardest thing for parents to do is to let their kids go through struggles because it makes the parent feel so vulnerable. They want so badly to swoop in and rescue and to keep their kids from ever having to struggle or experience pain, but to not let them learn how to deal with disappointment and failure and pain is a big mistake. Because if kids don't learn how to deal with life's hurts and losses, when they're in an environment where they're loved and supported, how will they survive the really bad falls in adulthood? Letting kids experience struggles is the hardest thing for parents to learn how to do, but it's one of the most important. It's so much harder to sit with them in the struggle and to teach them how to grieve it and how to work through it and how to find joy and reconciliation beyond it. But through this struggle, with their support, they learn to realize their own strength and their resourcefulness and their own character. They discover who they are. 
and they learn that the storms will pass and that they'll find the sun again. So now, beloved, does God love you even with what you're going through? Yes. Does he want to help you find the sun again? Yes. Struggle does not mean that God doesn't love you. There's nothing harder than for a parent to watch their child struggle until that child comes out stronger on the other side. And that is what God did with Jesus, his beloved son. And he chose to do that so that when Jesus triumphed into resurrection life, he would have you with him forever. Dare to trust in his love for you because it makes all the difference. In fact, I'd like to challenge you to an experiment this week. In every prayer that you pray this week, in every scripture that you read, keep the thought in your head, because of what Jesus did for me, I am God's beloved. In Christ, I am enough. And every time any variation of that I am not enough pops into your head, cut it off and replace it with, because of what Jesus did for me, I am God's beloved. In Christ, I am enough. See what kind of difference that makes in your week. And in every struggle that you face this week, remind yourself, no matter what I'm facing, I am not alone. Because of what Jesus did for me, I am God's beloved. In Christ, I am enough. And if you feel guilt over something, don't hide it or hold on to it until it morphs into shame. Bring it to the light. Give it to God. Name it. Repent of it and receive his forgiveness. Jesus died so you don't have to live as the condemned, but as the forgiven. Let go of the religious spirit and be embraced instead by the Holy Spirit of God. Be the beloved and see what God the Father will do through you. So as we end today, I want to remind you of that cartoon picture that I had in my head of the wave of advertising and negativity and comparison stilled by the presence of Jesus under your feet. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and to picture yourself standing there with Jesus' hands on your shoulders. And in a moment, I'm gonna say, because of Jesus, and then all together out loud, we're gonna say, I am God's beloved. And then I'll say, and in Christ, and we'll all say together, I am enough. So it starts with, I'm God's beloved, I am enough. Because of Jesus, I am God's beloved. And in Christ, I am enough. Go and be the beloved, for it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.